Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Just is sponsored by OneHub, letting you securely store and share your business files online. Featuring the all-new OneHub Sync the fastest way to keep all your teams working from the same page. Try it for free, and Just listeners can receive a special discount by visiting onehub.com slash just. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code JUST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 30th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have some weird thoughts. Luckily, I have a forum to share them. You're listening to it. Don't worry, we're going to roll right into Ted Cruzianisms. Also, 50th anniversary of Medicare. I'll celebrate it in the best way I know how, by railing against a prediction that has ceased to be relevant for 15 years. But anyway, i got to tell you about this idea. Here's the background. So all these kids' movies, I'd say about a third of all animated movies are based on this premise. What if it were a world of blank. What if it were a world of bees, of ants, of cars, of racing slugs, of talking toys, of monsters, of sharks, of farm animals, of clownfish, of penguins, of rats, of Scientologists? Oh, you didn't get the subtext of Osmosis Jones? Anyway, that's what they do. They get the writers in the room. They say, we're going to make a movie about bees. We're going to call it Bee Movies. Think about a hundred associations you have with bees. Then they think about all those possible jokes. Now think about everything you know about humans. Okay, you do that automatically. See where the overlay is. There's a chance for humor. Anything where there's an overlap between the subject of your movie and what we as people do every day. For instance... In human, in English, we humans say, I'm going to crawl into a fetal position. But if you were an ant, you'd say, Otherwise, I would just curl up in a lava position and weep. Which is a pretty similar joke to this from Cars. It's an old car talking to a younger car. But oh, he was a persistent little bugger for a two-cylinder. So humans have TiVo, bees. We have HIVO, but it's a disease. It's a horrible, horrible disease. How about when a bee picks out his clothes? Yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, black. Ooh, black and yellow. Yeah, let's shake it up a little. Because that's their color scheme. So a lot of these are just cheap puns, not that high. Object to cheap puns. The very title of the movie, Bee Movie, is kind of a cheap pun. But, you know, movies like Cars, they get a little more imaginative. They really get into the mind. So if cars existed, how would the world look? Oh yeah, I guess clouds would be shaped like cars, things like that. And then they do the cheap puns also. So this gets to my movie. Here's my idea. What if it were a world of horses? So that's my idea. Wait a minute, Mike. That's terrible. No, no. 
you got to listen to the next part of the idea. A movie based on like all these other movies where we ask, what if it were a world of horses and only horses ruled the world? Horses went to work wherever in offices. But the movie was made from the perspective of cows. So it would be about what if it were a world of horses, but it would be cows projecting their value systems onto horses. So there'd be nothing about quadrupedism because that would just be taken as a given, but all the jokes would be about things like letting people ride on you. Want a ride? Have a ride. We're jockeying for position, right? And riding crops and not chewing one's cud. And like this need to go fast, there'd be hysterical jokes about how everyone wants to go really fast and not having four stomachs, but only one stomach. And silks, oh my God, with the cow make excellent jokes about how horses wear silks. Now, here's the thing. This might not fly. So I have an even more meta idea. And this is Charlie Kaufman-esque. But you could make a movie about a movie maker who spends his whole life trying to greenlight a horse movie about cows. So it'd be my story, me pitching the horse movie as done by cows to confused people, or at least a really weirded out podcast audience. Okay, on the show today, I spiel and get a little outraged about what they were saying in 1967 about how much Medicare would cost in 1990. But first, August recess looms in Congress, and so do Ted Cruz's ambitions. This episode of The Gist is sponsored by OneHub, a better way for businesses to securely store and share your business files online. OneHub makes companies more productive by keeping teams up to date. And with the new blazingly fast OneHub Sync technology, changes to shared files like documents or spreadsheets are immediately distributed through a hybrid peer-to-peer plus cloud method. So your collaborations are always up to date and more productive, and you can make more informed decisions using the latest version. OneHub also features live customer support. So if you have any questions, you can chat with a real person. See why thousands of businesses have trusted their online storage collaboration and syncing needs to OneHub. Try OneHub free today and receive 30% off. Just visit OneHub.com slash gist. That's O-N-E-H-U-B dot com slash gist. Ted Cruz and the grand poobahs of senatorial republicanism are at war with each other. It's a little more complicated than Game of Thrones, but there are no white walkers. Actually, think about it. Cornyn, McCain, Cochran, they're all kind of white walkers. Anyway, I promise no more asides. This story is pretty complicated. It's about votes and accusations and procedures, but I promise you it's pretty fascinating. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to be joined by Manu Raju, who's senior congressional correspondent for Politico. Hello, Manu. Hello. So you have been laying it out for me. I read your stuff before everyone else on Ted Cruz. And we're going to do what screenwriters in Hollywood call a character pass. You only look at one character. You see if it makes sense through his motivations, through his eyes, to see that his actions are logical. And let's use Ted Cruz as our character, okay? Yes. Okay, so let's start with Friday. And this is when it first became news. Because Ted Cruz does something you just don't do in the Senate. The majority leader looked me in the eye and looked 54 Republicans in the eye. I cannot believe he would tell a flat-out lie. He calls Mitch McConnell a liar. What's going on there? Yeah, it was really quite remarkable. I mean, of course, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican 
leader. The Senate is a place that is, you know, a place of decorum. You're not supposed to address a senator directly, not, and you're definitely not supposed to impugn the integrity of a fellow senator. And you certainly aren't supposed to do that to a party leader of your own party. But, you know, if you're looking at Ted Cruz's motivation behind this, uh, he's running for president as a guy who's battling his own party's leadership. He is trying to show uh, all the Republicans out there in the conservative base that he's the one guy who has taken it to what he calls a, quote, Washington cartel uh, filled of favor-making and uh, corrupt deal-making, and he thinks that by attacking McConnell, even if it makes him a pariah in the Senate Republican conference, it's something that will certainly help him politically. So that's his larger thinking, uh, and that's one of the reasons why he went to the floor and made the jaw-dropping accusation that he did. Now, what did he call him a liar about? What did he say that uh, that Mitch McConnell looked him in the eyes and lied about? So it all stems from what's, what's called the Export-Import Bank, which is, of course, the chief uh, credit agency in, in the country. It's a bank that has really divided the Republican Party. Uh, the business community believes it's very important to boost exports overseas, but conservative groups and conservatives like Ted Cruz call it cronyism, corporate welfare for big business, and they have sought to kill it. Now, the charter for that bank expired on July 1st, uh, but Mitch McConnell, uh, in order to get with a separate bill through, a trade bill through in May, had to make an assurance to three senators who refused to vote for the trade bill unless McConnell committed to giving the Export-Import Bank a vote. Uh, so what McConnell did last Friday was that he moved to attach uh, the Export-Import Bank to the highway bill. Now, Cruz says that McConnell privately assured him that the Export-Import Bank would not be attached to the highway bill. He said that McConnell looked him and the rest of the Republican conference in the eye, and he said, no, there is no deal, there is no deal, there is no deal. He said McConnell said that three times, uh, but McConnell turned around and did this. Now, McConnell will say, look, I've been saying all along that I would give this measure, the Export-Import Bank, a vote on the highway bill, which is exactly what I just did. So in some ways, we have a bit of a he said, she said, uh, but rarely do you see a senator publicly air such a grievance with his own party the way that Ted Cruz did. Right, and we got to get into one of the subtleties here, because I understand why Ted Cruz would want his simple vote to put people on the record, and so people can't, Republicans can't run away from their vote when it's just a straight up and down vote on the Export-Import Bank. But what's the subtlety about putting it to the highway bill? Why would that, in Cruz's mind, lessen the uh, uh, potential to actually defund the bank? Because the highway bill is essential. It has to get passed. It's a must-pass bill. If it does not pass by the end of this month, then essentially highway funding will dry out in this country. So everyone in Congress supports an extension uh, of highway funding. So that's the reason why supporters of the bank were pushing so aggressively to attach it to a must-pass bill like the highway bill. And it's the reason why Ted Cruz went apoplectic when he saw it attached to a bill that uh, he knows he can't ultimately oppose. So it probably, what, what is working in Ted Cruz's favor right now is that the House Republicans do not agree with the Senate's highway bill. 
So the, the both chambers are going to pass a simple extension of highway funding, and they're going to try to negotiate out a compromise in the fall. So the question still remains whether that Export-Import Bank will get into the final proposal that will eventually land on the president's desk. And at this point, I'm going to ask our listeners to remember that. So what's happened in Ted Cruz's mind is he wanted to defund import-export, but he kind of got screwed, and now he's in the position of having to blow up the whole Senate to get his agenda passed. And I think that's important because the next thing he does, and his pal, Senator Mike Lee does, is they try to get roll call votes on what measures and are thwarted. Yeah, it was really uh, remarkable. It was seen on Sunday, and the, the Senate doesn't work on Sunday. So we were in session. Some would say uh, the Senate doesn't work <laughs> at all. But right, yeah. Some would certainly say that. But we were in on Sunday because of this effort by Cruz to essentially prohibit McConnell from speeding up the agenda, so he had to bring the Senate back on Sunday. And what Cruz and Lee uh, were trying to do, it's a very convoluted procedural move to essentially allow, to circumvent a filibuster. Remember, a filibuster requires 60 votes to override. And what Cruz and Lee were trying to do was change Senate procedures so that just 51 votes, a simple majority, could consider two separate amendments to the highway bill. And in those two amendments, one, the Cruz measure would take a much tougher line on Iran. It would say that sanctions could not be relieved on Iran until it recognizes Israel's right to exist and releases the American hostages held in Tehran. And Mike Lee had a measure uh, to defund Planned Parenthood. But this prompted a lot of concerns from Republican leaders who did not want to use this process, which some called the, quote, nuclear option, that would essentially uh, gut Senate procedures through this circuitous maneuver, even if it's to support things that they ostensibly support. So this happened on Sunday. Of course, this is two days after Cruz called Mitch McConnell a liar. And when Cruz went to the floor to ask for a roll call vote, Mm -hmm. typically this is something that is awarded to a senator. They get a sufficient second uh, number of senators who raise their hands uh, and say that, sure, we can go to a roll call vote. What happened was that there were not enough senators who raised their hands with Ted Cruz to vote, give him that roll call vote. And essentially his effort was thwarted. It was a really remarkable scene. Afterwards, Ted Cruz came out on the floor and just laid into Mitch McConnell, said he was afraid of this issue, and it just shows how tense things have become in the Senate Republican conference. Okay, but let me stick up for Ted Cruz, even though I disagree with his policy stances here. Can an, uh, uh, an argument be made that he says, you know, you guys, my fellow Republicans, you say you're against Planned Parenthood. You say the majority of you have a problem with import-export bank and certainly with Obamacare. And yet when I try to do something, when I try to actually get these laws overturned or passed or whatever we say our agenda is, you're more beholden to senatorial procedures. You're more beholden to, uh, in the future, we're not going to have a majority. And, you know, is that really about the Senate functioning well? Or is that about you holding on to your power and when you get seniority, you get your favors? I mean, that's what Ted Cruz would say, right? That is the criticism that really resonates with his supporters. Certainly that is what he is saying, and that's the really, really tough thing for senators to push back, because this procedural stuff, the inside game, etc., is understood by people who follow this stuff very closely, who work in Washington, who work in the Senate, the senators themselves. But when you explain it to voters like that, to say to a conservative voter, What's more important to you, maintain the Senate procedures or defunding Planned Parenthood? 
most conservative voters will say defunding Planned Parenthood. And Ted Cruz has realized that. Has Ted Cruz basically defined himself as someone who's never going to get help to work within the system to get his agenda passed? Yeah, he certainly has. And you know what the question for me is going to be is that, look, if Ted Cruz does not win the Republican nomination right now, he's polling sort of in the middle of the pack. Uh, if he does not win the Republican nomination, what is he going to do? I mean, he's going to come back to the Senate. He's going to face re-election in 2018. He's going to have to decide whether or not to run for re-election. And if he runs and he wins... Uh, what is his goal in the Senate going to be? Is he going to be uh, continually be a troublemaker, someone who uh, does these things that in, to undermine the Republicans' agenda, or is he going to be more of a typical senator who may, you know, may compromise from time to time, cut some deals, try to get legislation through, try to become a committee chairman who has a lot of power? Uh, you know, that's going to be a question for Ted Cruz if the presidency does not work out this time. And finally, in your estimation from your reporting, is Cruz really pure or are there some areas where a charge of hypocrisy can be leveled? Look, I mean, I'm not sure on the policy measures themselves, but certainly there have been times when he has said things that weren't exactly true. You know, he he came out with a book called A Time for Truth, and uh, he tried to position himself as a guy who tells the truth, the only person who tells the truth in Washington. But under our, from our reporting, we found out that a number of the things that he asserted uh, happened didn't quite happen the way he said they did. For one, he accused the Republican leadership of going downtown and freezing out all of his campaign donations uh, and not getting any campaign donations because they were so angry with them. We found really no evidence of that. Uh, Mitch McCall's office went on the record and said, that is a patently false. Uh, he accused Rand Paul of undermining his 21-hour uh, Obamacare speech by coming to the floor and sharply questioning him when Cruz was on the floor during that infamous 2013 speech. I intend to speak in support of defunding Obamacare until I am no longer able to stand. I don't believe there's been a day on this Senate floor that I haven't worn my argument boots. So I had a choice with which I was confronted, which is, do I follow through and wear my argument boots, or do I listen to the very sage counsel from my friend from Kentucky and go with more comfortable shoes, and, and I will embarrassingly admit that I took the coward's way out. Uh, but when I talked to Rand Paul about that, Rand said to me, it's kind of confusing because Ted Cruz actually sent me a thank you note thanking me for how much I helped him during this. Uh, so, you know, there are assertions that are certainly questioned by Ted Cruz that, that from his colleagues, uh, and it just goes to show you that, you know, sometimes, you know, when you assert some of these things uh, it, and you attack some of your colleagues, it will come back to bite you. Manu Raju, senior congressional correspondent from Politico. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. Harry's was started by two guys who are passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men. How did they anticipate my face? They just knew they were guys. They paid an obscenely high price for razors. The razors were maybe okay. They just kept adding blades. That's what razor technology was back then. Let's add a blade. Let's add another blade. Let's add some costs. I don't know. There's not even a price per blade calculation. Just like once you get to six, you could charge like 80 bucks a razor or something. Harry's blew through all this. I hate to talk about disruption, but what Harry's did to razors is bigger than what Uber is doing to taxi drivers. There's no downside. You're the beneficiary. Their razor kits start at $15. It includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of the shave cream or the foaming gel. 
$15, that's a great price. I'm going to do better than that. I'll give you $5 off if it's your first purchase. You use the code GIST. And after using the code, that means you get an entire month's shaving for 10 bucks. Shipping's free. So go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in my code GIST with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter coupon code GIST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. And now the spiel, Wilbur. Today is the 50th anniversary of when Lyndon Johnson signed Medicare into law. Yay! It'll cost a trillion dollars in a decade. Oof, that's quite a pain. Medicare's pre-existing condition is that it has few cost controls. The instinct to help our fellow citizen, our aging citizens, it's a good one. Program's helpful. The costs are, to quote Regist, they're out of control. So it stands to reason that they are out of control because we pay for services. We don't pay for outcomes. You're going to have escalating costs. But I will say the costs have decreased as of late. The program solvent will be for the next few years will be when you get old, provided you get old pretty soon, but probably will be for some time after that. But I was reading all about the anniversary of the coverage, and I was reading specifically an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Sally Pipes. And the headline was Medicare at 50, Hello Midlife Crisis. And as one can imagine, what the Wall Street Journal will be saying is this program is doomed and bloated and all that stuff. And again, the truth is that it has a lot of problems, but it's not going to go away anytime soon. And if we as a society get our acts together, we'll have Medicare. Here's the subhead, though. And I've seen this fact quoted, but here's the subhead of the article. In 1967, the projected cost by 1990 was $12 billion. The actual cost was $110 billion in seven years. It'll hit a trillion dollars. All right, let's go to that 1967 projection. So in the first year in 1966, Medicare spent $3 billion. In 1967, the House Ways and Means Committee predicted that the program would cost $12 billion by 1990. It ended up costing $110 billion that year. So what I immediately did, and this is a great tip for you, not just in your consumption of analysis of historical Medicare pricing, but in your enjoyment of all entertainment containing statements of dollar figures in some time other than your own, I want to give you a tip. That tip is this, the inflation calculator. I cannot watch Mad Men without running things through the inflation calculator. So we finally have an answer to the question, what makes Don Draper smile? $5,000 seems to be the number. Okay, that scene took place in 1963. Run it through the inflation calculator. $5,000 then is $39,000 today. So that's a nice bonus. I can see why Don Draper is smiling. Or Annie Hall came out in 1977, took place in 1975, though. And that's when Annie is protesting that her apartment, a bad apartment, is a fairly pricey $400. That place is $400 a month? Yes, it is. It's, it's got bad plumbing and bugs. The inflation calculator tells you that it's $1,800 in today's dollars. So that makes it more significant. You see why Annie was upset. Of course, besides inflation, there are other factors into the price of New York real estate. The same is true for health care costs. This gets me back to in 1967, they projected the cost by 1990 would be $12 billion. I ran it through the inflation calculator. Do you know that the inflation between 1967 and 1990 was such that the $3 billion it cost then 
was $12 billion in 1990. So the House Ways and Means Committee, I'm looking at you, Chairman Wilbur Mills, the House Ways and Means Committee struck out on everything. They barely took into account the effects of inflation. That's all it was. They All they did was they say, oh yeah, the price will rise what inflation turned out to be. Now, I want to be fair. Inflation probably turned out to be a lot bigger than they thought in 1967. Don't you remember in the 70s it went kind of crazy? All right, all right. But let's think about what other terrible projections they made in 1967. Now, I know you're telling me, wait a minute, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of Sally Pipes raising this 1967 figure to show you that it was a terrible projection. No, her point is that costs are out of control and they've always been lying to you. My point is that in 1967, the House Ways and Means Committee did a terrible job, not just because the future proved them wrong, but how could they even think that the price wouldn't go up? Look at the number of people. In 1967, the average age was 67 years old for men and 74 years old for women. So if you look at 23 years prior, it had risen three and a half years for men and seven and a half years for women. So the trend was, as through most of human history, as the people on the House Ways and Means Committee should have known, that lifespans are going to rise. And indeed they did. By 1990, they had risen five and a half years for men and four and a half years for women. What it all means is that In 1967, there were 19 million Americans over 65, you know, Medicare age. By 1990, there were 32 million Americans. When you take this extremely foreseeable increase in the number of people eligible for your program, when you add into it the maybe not totally foreseeable, but you should have priced into it something about inflation, their projection was terrible. It was awful. And to this day, they're hanging Medicare by the fact that in 1967, they estimated it wrong. If you want to know the truth, in recent years, the rise in Medicare spending has lowered. It was an average of like 9% up until 2008. It's been, last year was pretty bad at about 5.5%, but that's much less than its historical rise. And in the years before that, it rose even less. Now, it's still rising. It's at such a big number that, yeah, it is going to cost more than a trillion dollars, you know, within a decade. But I can't believe that 1967 Ways and Means Committee estimate. I just can't. That was terrible foresight in hindsight, but also I would like to think that if I were around in 1967, that I would be irate back then. But I guess that and 20 cents will get you right on the subway. By the way, 20 cents in 1967 is $1.43 and 2015 dollars, which is a lot cheaper than the subway actually is. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer. She's working on a vampire story from the garlic's perspective. Managing producer Joel Meyer is working on a gangster flick from the coroner's perspective. I'd watch that. Executive producer Andy Bowers, he's working on a Fast and the Furious sequel from the perspective of the fruit cart that gets knocked over in a chase. The Gist originally started life as a James Bond movie, all from the martini's perspective. Shaken, not stirred, or how to bruise the gin. Thanks for listening.